Disrupted Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Raja Gawi, partner at Era Ventures. Raja, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Hugh. Great to be back. Yeah, we had so much fun last time. You have since changed to uh, to Era Ventures. Want to talk a little bit about that transition and, and what got you here? Yeah, for sure. So I've been with Era Ventures for going on two years now, and we are a new PropTech fund investing across construction, real estate, even supply chains. We think of it as physical world disruption. And our thesis is quite simple, actually. There are many ways to disrupt this massive, massive market that is real assets. And not to go to Clay Christensen on you here, you can either enable existing players, often by providing them with software. You can replace existing players with tech-enabled versions of themselves, and hopefully you're just not building the same old business and growing it faster, but you're also improving on business economics, on capital intensity, really making the business fundamentals more compelling above and beyond top-line growth. And then the third bucket, which is the one we're most excited about, although we're investing across the spectrum, is creating net new business models. And my favorite example there is Airbnb. The founders of Airbnb could have gone to Marriott and said, hey, you have all this foot traffic. Instead of sending it to hotels, send it to people's bedrooms. We'll help you index them. I don't know that that would have really taken off. So they had to go and create a marketplace for hospitality and in the process created a novel asset class, which is short-term rentals, which is now a standalone real estate asset class with actually very decent returns, relatively speaking. So as we sort of take a step back and look at the industry, Across its asset classes, from residential to commercial to family, hospitality, industrial, et cetera, and then across the different business models that you can build, be it software, be it hard tech, fintech marketplaces, other more product-specific type business models like Proco Opcos, we're excited to invest across that entire spectrum. But we do think that the largest opportunities across all asset classes are really in those most disruptive new business models that I just uh, to. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, and that is let's spend a minute on what business models even are. And I say that because business model is one of those words that gets used a lot to describe something, but people don't say why it's a different business model. I- I'll seed the conversation with the way I learned them is the where you're, you're kind of s- setting out all of the steps of delivery of value and looking at how you know, how each of those steps is done. Is it, is it well? Is it not? Is it not well? Is it important? Is it not important? Really breaking down how value is delivered and maybe changing aspects of it, tweaking something here, tweaking something there, so that ultimately you're saying, how are we delivering value differently and how are we earning money from it differently? But talk to me a little bit about how that, what I just said, either lines up with what you think of as a, as a business model or, or give me a better definition. Um, I think the way you described it is fairly accurate. The way we think about it is sort of even more tactical, I would say. And we tie it to the way sort of founders and other VCs have historically talked about businesses and described them. And at the highest level, we think of seven business models that we see variations of in this industry. And I would argue that there are sub-business models underneath many of them. So you have software and data. You're usually building something with an 80% plus gross margin, getting cash up front, having folks commit for several years, no real path to profitability (laughs) until you're at a very sort of large scale, sometimes past your uh, public market debut. I would say that sort of the pro course and plan grades of the world have been really good successful examples in the industry of folks building there. 
We love marketplaces at Thera. We think that there are a lot of inefficiencies in how supply and demand are matched right now. We also see a lot of shift in spend and nearshoring is a big part of it, but folks trying to basically find cheaper, equal quality products, especially for construction, but also across real estate transactions. We think there are a lot of big opportunities there. I think Zillow started as a listing is increasingly more of a marketplace. I would argue Airbnb is a marketplace and there are a bunch of success examples there as well. We think about fintech as a core part of what we do as PropTech investors. I think within fintech, there are a bunch of different examples, business models, payments, lending, insurance, et cetera. We think the opportunity there is massive and a lot of the product market fit there uh, is by design, if not outright by law, like in insurance. We love hard tech. We're investors in a company called Passive Logic, which wants to automate buildings with a combination of, sort of uh, hardware and software, really powered by AI. We think that as folks looking to disrupt the physical world, you will need a physical component to whatever business you're building, oftentimes, to really move the needle. So we're excited about folks who are just either going after existing categories of spend, say thermostats, and this was a $3 billion acquisition, just building a better thermostat, even replacing diesel engines with electric uh, batteries like Moxion is doing out in California. Uh, a lot of very interesting use cases there. Robots and construction sites um, are also very compelling and so on. And then we think of sort of the next three uh, business models are fairly specific to our industry. And I would say the three are tech-enabled services, propco, opco, and balance sheet businesses. And those types of businesses either aim to recreate existing businesses uh, in the industry, use technology to improve on their books, like I just described, or use different kinds of capital to own, operate, and manage actual real assets. And I would say the propco, opco model, which is discussed a lot online, often uses two parallel entities. Uh, one is an operating company, and that raises venture money, promises venture style returns, and then a property company, which raises some combination of debt and equity to actually outright own physical assets, homes, buildings, trailer parks, etc., and manages them in tandem, where real estate money goes to own real assets and generate real assets, sort of target IRRs and returns, and then the operating company is the brand, the programmatic acquisition of these assets and the management expertise of those assets. And that's where the venture money goes. And if you are good at raising venture money and real estate money, then you control your own destiny and you can do some very interesting things to scale there. And then balance sheets businesses are ones that predominantly use debt on their actual books to own and operate these real assets. It could be to buy equipment. It could be to actually sort of buy and flip homes. And there are a bunch of interesting examples there, sort of like open door public markets. Didn't do too well after the IPO, doing much better now since the beginning of the year off of that bottom. But that kind of sort of capital intensity is both a blessing and a curse because it could be a real interesting moat, especially if your unit economics fence a lot and you can repay that debt in the current interest rate environment. But it could really weigh down on your valuation if you don't manage it properly or your product market fit is not as strong. So I know that was a lot. So I'm going to take a Take a step back here and pause. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's a lot in there. You're right. And it's a pretty articulated vision for a bunch of different aspects of a business model. That's why I'm just a big fan of breaking things apart and saying, well, what do we mean? Especially for the entrepreneur who's thinking, well, I know I'm building software, but what do you mean business model? And I think some of the examples you've given are how value gets delivered, how it gets funded, when it gets funded, when it gets charged for, how it gets charged for, making things smaller, making things longer, usually smaller is better. But you know that's a really interesting array of, of examples where even on the prop tech side, there are things that aren't really relevant to a, a contact software company. Like 
are we funding some things one way and funding some with debt and so, some things with venture money? But is it like I don't personally see how how you know a different capital structure makes sense for an early context company. But that doesn't mean that's not true. That's the whole point, right? Is some some innovator comes and says I've got a way of delivering value, tweaking one of the one of the factors, and as a result. I'm harder to compete with. I'm easier to, to buy. I'm, I'm more sticky. Some factor that makes the business healthier. I mean, that you know, you talk about alpha. I got to imagine one of the areas where alpha makes is, is most likely to be found is when someone has found a novel way to assemble the things that go into a business model. Does that sound right? Yes, and I think if you go back to the disruption continuum example that I started with. You can enable the existing players, replace them, or build new stuff that just doesn't exist. I would argue that most enablement tools are going after the spend in the IT budget. And that is anywhere from 1% to 3% for any one player in the industry that you pick. Relatively low, the industry is fairly under-digitized. It should be high single digits, even like low teens, but we're not there yet. And that's worth a challenge and opportunity, which means there's only so much money that could be spent software and data today, but that budget should be growing. And it has been a little bit over time, but not as fast as we've seen in other industries. I think the other two buckets then become very interesting because the industry is large and fragmented and fairly private. So we don't have full visibility into the real profit pools. Like how much do people actually make in construction end to end, right? Like for every hundred million dollar building that you build, how much profit is extracted? by every single entity from the bank to the worker and everybody in between. I think estimates put that number somewhere between 20 and 40%. So if you're building a new business in the industry, you can either say, okay, I'm going to go after the one to 3% IT budget. And today a chunk of that is going to sort of Microsoft and Apple for the hardware and the operating systems, much of that is going to Autodesk and Procore, Oracle even uh, a little bit to call it the Intuits of the world for the SMBs and basically you're building underneath them and hoping to grow into their size today as the budgets overall grow. I think that's valid. I think there are a lot of uh, collaboration tools that still need to be built in the industry. A few more platforms that haven't really fully been fleshed out around scheduling, around finances, but the opportunity there is uh, shrinking. Now, if you want to sort of replace existing players, go after their own profit pools outright, depending on how much vertical integration you do with the kind of players that you pick, now you're looking at a much larger market, but at a far smaller gross margin oftentimes. So your typical SaaS company has an 80% gross margin. Your typical marketplace might have like a 5 to 10% take rate. And you just want to make sure that the numbers pencil out for the category that you're going for, for the sub-segment, for the asset class that you're going after. And there's no one right answer and there are problems galore, right? But software is not the panacea for an industry that is all about putting up atoms, right? Yeah. Uh, but in the same breath, we're years and years, if not decades away from robots building everything for us, right? Uh, and you still need people, you still need to augment their expertise. You still need to uh, help them work together and collaborate better. And I think the opportunity is somewhere in between. Um, you're going to need some more software, you're going to need a bunch of hardware, and you're going to need all kinds of financial products, marketplaces, uh, just smarter ways of building new businesses to really drive impact in the industry uh, and fix the myriad problems that we have. You know, the argument also, your point about systems about disruption at the far end where you're where you're really changing kind of everything. You look at, at how replacing what's there already, there's an analogy that gets made in this this book by Ajay Agrawal and Avi Goldfarb, and a third author I'm forgetting, 
where they're talking about electricity and, and their, their analogy is easy for folks that to kind of understand in, in abstract. And they say, look, the first thing that happened with electricity is they put electric motors where the steam ones were and they made, a, it was a marginal improvement of 10%, 15%, which for some people was worth it, but most people kind of wasn't. Then someone said, hang on a minute, I can put an electrical engine near every one of the, the places where power is needed. And immediately there was a, a, a more significant uh, improvement, but the real improvement was when they said we can reorganize the entire factory, which led to first some some immediate improvements because it's just you're putting things in a much more natural way for the process they were supporting. But then it led to the production line, which wouldn't have been possible without that innovation. And I think that's where your point about really deep disruption, I think, sees its its greatest fruition is when the processes that you're supporting are are reorganized which takes more than a, a bright-eyed entrepreneur. It takes a lot of change management. It takes a broader view of what you're trying to get done, you know, which is to be encouraged, but, but a little thin on the ground, don't you think? Yeah. Somebody once said that if you have a crap process and then you try and digitize it, you'll have a crap digital process. <laughs> so software is only as good as the SOPs around it. Oftentimes it can help you in our industry maybe surface insights better, get uh, more real-time visibility into what's going on, analyze data from disparate systems in new ways. But ultimately, the building gets built by a team just managing that process really tightly. And that requires people on the ground, that requires actual workers building things. And software de-risks that process in many ways. But it's on its own not going to make it better. You still need the people, right? That's not going to go away anytime soon. And yeah. to your other point, it's oftentimes incremental, right? Technology can help improve processes, right? But things don't change overnight. And I think the challenge in the industry is that the learning cycle, right? It takes about six months to build a single family home. Once you have a shovel in the ground, it can take two more years to build a high rise. Call in like downtown Manhattan again, not talking about the planning and the permitting cycles, which can take even longer oftentimes depending on the geography, but you're going to go and implement a solution. You're going to take anywhere from sort of six to 24 months to see how the building actually came together. And that's a very long sort of period relative to software, at least, especially consumer facing things to close a learning loop, right? Like Amazon can run tens of thousands, if not more AB tests against millions of consumers in the span of a morning. Construction solution in a high rise needs two years to really see a project end to end. And that makes it very hard to drive that kind of sort of longer term improvement. It doesn't sort of hard as in like takes longer, but if it works, people see that and it really sticks. Interesting. I did another podcast with a, a, a couple of folks that are experts on design build. And the question was, you know, what are its struggles and how is it succeeding? And one of the points they made was in the very beginning of design build, I don't know about the beginning, beginning, but when it started to become really popular a number of years ago a lot of risk was pushed from owners to contractors who in the rush of this new way of doing business accepted some things that they kind of knew they shouldn't mm. um, but they thought maybe it would work out and now you're you're hearing of a of a the pendulum swinging the other way where a lot of contractors just won't bid because they're understanding and it speaks to your point about speed of change and understanding the implications of what this change might be. I mean, one of the hard parts to your point about construction is implications don't always show up in the first week or month or even year. Sometimes it takes a meaningful amount of time to 
understand, okay, we've changed something. How's that going to have an effect on the hundred thousand little things I need to put in, in place in this, you know, in this high rise? Um, yeah. Really interesting and, perspective. And the real world is messy, right? And you have all kinds of confounding factors that may muddy the picture or the end conclusion, right? I think the flip side is we put like $1.9 trillion worth of construction work in place this past year in the US. It's a massive amount of money, right? And it's, it's sort of erected, it's done, it's there. So there's it's still an industry that can put nearly $2 trillion to work every year, right? And that was up from, call it 1.3 in 2018, 2019, when I first joined this industry. So it's large, it's growing. There's a lot that actually works, but uh, there are sort of, I don't want to say infinite, but near infinite ways to sort of improve on it, right? And that's where the opportunity lies, I think, between recognizing what really works in the industry and uh, what could be done better. And the corollary to that then is for the things that seemingly don't work that well, just asking like the third or fourth order why and how much of that is just misaligned structures, incentive structures on the business side versus actual technological barriers. How do you look at this when your job is, when you boil it down to understand what's out there, understand, I don't know about probabilities, but possible payoffs and make a bet? You're betting on something that will happen over a horizon that's really, really hard to predict. And when you're talking about the, the, the time horizons of those three types of, of software approach, you know, on that disruption continuum you mentioned, almost by definition, as you go from replacing what's there to changing the game, the, the horizon gets longer and uh, almost by definition, the uncertainty gets higher. How do you think about that? I think about it by call it end customer and asset class. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, if you are doing something that gives sort of consumers something more of a financial product and you're doing it on the transaction side, then you can sort of close on these transactions within the span of weeks, a few months, and that learning cycle is much shorter than say you are putting sensors inside of concrete in a 60-story high-rise where you're going to be putting these sensors up as the tower goes up over the span of months and months and months. And then you need, I don't know, 60 years to figure out if your readings are actually really good and the concrete was done like super right. It's a little bit of an exaggeration. Probably nobody's going to wait for 60 years for sensor data. The battery's going to die. But you get my point around like validating that a product really works varies a lot by which asset class and where in its life cycle you're innovating. And I would say that on the technology side, a lot of the trends or sort of the unblocks that have helped build large companies have been sort of somewhat recent. I would argue that Procore really took off and it's sort of call it many lookalikes when Wi-Fi just became very available on construction sites. Mm-hmm. And it was also around the time sort of 5G just became much more reliable, sort of mid-2010s. And everybody's like, oh, I don't need to have a, a cabinet for all the papers anymore. I can have it on my laptop or my iPad. And that's so much nicer. Something like an open space for photo documentation and capture really took off when not just phones, but cameras became cheap enough and good enough that you can walk aside and capture enough images that are high quality. And there was some technical innovation around AI there, sort of figuring out your location in a GPS-deprived environment and mapping it back. The floor plan, that was like very much a moment in time, sort of technical breakthrough the company was able to capitalize on. I think Hardware continues to get cheaper and cheaper. AI continues to get better and better. And we're going to be able to sort of unlock more and more interesting use cases. And hopefully off the back of that, more exciting platforms. 
I don't know what to say slowly over time, but probably might feel more like a step function over time. I know there's a lot of talk about AI and LLMs right now, although a lot of the more exciting stuff around prediction optimization, those models have been around for a while. But the industry is also getting ready for that because we've had like five, seven years of digitization. Technologically, there are a few unlocks that are coming our way that should help breathe, sort of breathe life into a couple of interesting types of companies. When you think about the unblocks that are coming, what do you, what do you see? I think it is hardware getting cheaper and more reliable Got it. and AI getting ever so power, more powerful. And as I think about AI in particular, I think there is a part around just getting good data and visualizing it to build trust. The, it's not sort of, again, crap in, crap out. The industry has been digitizing. A lot of this data has been sort of accumulating over time. I think the industry, especially on the construction side, but also on the real estate side, loves its dashboards. There are even entire conferences dedicated to people showing off their dashboards and what they measure and how they manage against it. What that really does is, sure, it gives you a lot of visibility and empowers your managers, but it also, over time, helps you keep your data clean, right? And once you have enough clean data over time, you can start to do some very interesting things. I think the first thing is you can start to run predictions off of that data. And then if you predict enough things, you can start to optimize. You can say like, oh, here's sort of 15,000 different ways I can predict the schedule is going and this is the optimal one. So like, go do that one, right? And you can start to do generative design or even just like LLMs are really just predicting the next letter or the next word. And that's becoming super powerful as well. So how do you run LLMs off of this data that's not reliable? I think some advanced players in the industry probably have enough good data that they can start to do some interesting prediction optimization off of it. I think most are still trying to clean their data up. The chasm right now for AI in the industry, in as much as you're just running it off of people's data, right, is between visualization and that sort of prediction generation optimization. The flip part is if AI is just embedded into your platform, right, my robot needs AI to navigate. Uh, I'm using AI on images that I capture, count faucets. It's not contingent on somebody else's data. It is solely within my control. That becomes much more interesting. And that's where having the hardware and the proprietary data becomes super powerful. And again, that's also where the, the entrepreneur comes in, where they, well, entrepreneur and the user, where they've lived with this technology and this capability long enough that truly innovative ways of using it start to come about. That's the, the, the thing, right, is that most times new technology first gets used like old technology until we realize what it's natively good for. And then you suddenly you unlock all sorts of interesting uh, capabilities. And I think we're still early even in that cycle. The, the sort of inno innovative use of the underlying tech, I think there's still a lot of room to run for people to understand and really think about. What if we were able to predict this? Or what if we were able to immediately classify that or, you know, automate this or automate that? So I think there's going to wind up being a lot of interesting innovation aside from the tech in, in how it's used. Totally. And I also think that some of this frontier technology uh, also hits the market and faces a lot of skepticism and often needs a lot of time uh, or it earns trust from an otherwise very skeptical industry where the incentive structure is such that overperformance is not really rewarded properly, but underperformance can be severely punished, right? So Isn't that interesting? why should I trust your black box AI when it says like, I don't know, I'm making something up right now. The sort of a worker is likely to have a safety incident on the site next week, right? I'm not going to change the way I do business just because like some tech bro from Silicon Valley told me his algorithm spat out a number. But hey, I mean, if you have as a general contractor, 
a safety risk score, a predictive one off of all of your sites. And then something does happen. You're like, wow, like I was told this is 70% accurate. And now that feels right. Maybe I'll believe it the next time, but so much time needs to pass. Right. Yeah. And oftentimes the counterfactual, if you intervene and you prevent it from happening, it's like, how, how do you go and reconcile that and build trust there? That all takes time. Right. And then that sort of the second order question for venture investors becomes, okay, if this is going to be a uh, long product and sales cycle, both, when is the right time to invest in this venture, the right sort of source of capital to fuel this kind of innovation? Or is this just like a feature on top of an existing platform where a, one of the many ERPs can come and layer it on top of their data, on top of their workflows, and it can be a slow burn there. That's fine. because not. I think these are all the questions that we're all trying to figure out in real time. And there's no sort of one size fit all answer, uh, but it's all coming and we'll all like improve the way we interact with and manage and construct the physical world. It's just the time scale point again, it can be hard. Yeah. Well, I, I want to close with AI. I want to just quickly chat about what you're expecting. I think it's a very interesting moment for AI on two fronts. Uh, one is more industry specific because again, we have more and more data that the incumbents are sitting on after years of digitization. And we have cheaper and better hardware that lets you capture new types of data. And then you can use AI to analyze it in very interesting ways, right? So between the industry maturing and technology also leveling up to where the industry, the physical world needs it to be, I think that's super compelling. And having founders who can speak to both sides of that equation, like incumbent data versus proprietary, I call it, from the field data is going to be a very fun conversation. I'll bet. Well, I look forward to it. Raja, thank you for being on the podcast. As always, an incredible conversation. Thank you for having me here.